2: specifically the franchising model and how it works. The term franchise applies to any business where the owner has decided to license its operations alongside with its products, branding, knowledge, and know-how connections, all in exchange for a franchise fee. Typically a percentage of all monthly or annual revenues is what counts as that franchise fee. As you can imagine, as a financial planner, franchising is not where my expertise lies, nor is it a place where I spend a ton of time reading or doing research. However, since it is a space that I'm noticing more and more interest in from clients looking to diversify their portfolios to include direct business ownership, I decided to call up someone I know who's well-versed in the world of franchising and just have a dialogue. Boynton Weeks is a franchise consultant with FranNet, a franchise broker group who plays matchmaker to successful small businesses and aspiring franchisees. Boynton has been in the industry for over a decade and has been a franchisee himself for almost as long. So with that brief introduction, welcome, Boynton Weeks, to the Tech Money Podcast, man.
3: Thanks, Malcolm, and uh, excited and ecstatic to spend a few minutes with you today talking about the landscape in the world of franchising.
2: Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you making the time. And uh, to get us kicked off here, you know, I know I breezed through your resume a bit there in my introduction, but what else should I have included about you?
3: No, that was pretty, pretty complete. I mean, there's some intangibles, right, Malcolm, that you wouldn't glean from my resume nor my bio, right? So I would say that, you know, the main thing for your listeners to hear is that, you know, my my passion and my compassion for helping people to understand this franchise landscape, right? I came into this industry 20 years ago. And it's been good to me. It's been very successful for me and my family. But one of the things I try to share, Malcolm, with my clients is simply this. I'm excited about it. I've acquired a certain amount of subject matter expertise. And I've made some mistakes along the way, right? So I try to share with my clients the successes and the failures and the pitfalls as well so that they can have a more streamlined path forward to successful franchise ownership.
2: That's all good, good pieces to include, right? I mean, that, that's the age old saying that people don't really care what you know until they know you care, right? So that certainly goes into it. Um, but as I mentioned in my intro, I've found myself personally discuss, discussing, excuse me, franchising with clients of mine more and more recently and not necessarily in any great detail but it's part of our push to own real assets in addition to you know the stocks and ETFs and mutual funds and whatever else that's traded on publicly exchanges that that everybody's got in their portfolios we try and diversify out where appropriate to owning real assets like have you noticed an uptick of people from the outside trying to work their way into this space no that
3: that's a great question malcolm you know, if you think about it, right, that there's been a tremendous explosion of excitement around franchising. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, um, you know, I harken back to, there's a young lady named Nancy Lamond, and she's the executive vice president of the American Association of Retired Persons, right? Now, I'm Hmm. sure you haven't been contacted by them yet, but they have over 38 million members in the United States. And these are people over the age of 50, right? And, and, and so what's happening is ageism, as we know, is real in America. As the baby boomers are being aged out of, you know, very successful careers, in many cases, millennials aren't as tied to the corporate gig as many of their predecessors were. More and more women, as they've become successful in corporate America and been able to kick down, you know, the glass ceiling and kick through it, many of those folks are also seeking entrepreneurial pursuits as well through the avenue called franchising. Mm-hmm. You know, another area that's providing a tre- tremendous boom is veterans, right? Mm-hmm. We may not normally see them as a normal target market, but the IFA, which is the International Franchise Association, actually has an established body within the IFA called VetFran, where they help to promote the the, the ideals of franchising to veterans who have served Mm -hmm. our country, have now come out of the service and looking for that encore career, that next step. Interestingly enough, Malcolm, the good franchisors actually provide discounts to veterans to incentivize them to buy franchises in many cases because, and it's not necessarily that it's some benevolent thing that they, they seek to do, but it's really, if you think about the nature of the mission when you're in, in the military, right? It's about the collective mm-hmm. way. A rising tide raises all ships. Well, that mentality sort of transcends and spills over to, if you will, some of the fundamental tenets of franchising. So there are a lot of reasons But I go back to Nancy Lamont. One of the things she said is of the 38 million members that they have in AARP as of today, most Mm -hmm. of them fall into, you know, one of three buckets. They're either working, looking for work, or looking to buy a business. And so franchising on that level is very attractive to those folks as well.
2: So normally when we use the term franchise, right, people tend to think of food service such as Chick-fil-A or Starbucks or Domino's or Subway's or everything else that's out there. But I know the space is far broader than that. What are some of the other you know, well-known businesses that we all patronize on a regular basis that we may not even be aware of are part of a franchise?
3: Yeah, excellent. And that's one of the constant battles that I face from a franchise consultant pers- perspective, which is really oh, just sure. to get folks to understand that the franchise landscape is much larger than simply food and retail, right? And part of trying to dispel that, that that misconception is because when you think that it's McDonald's and Burger King, you're automatically thinking, as you stated, a million dollars, two million dollars investment, right? And that's really not what it is. There are significant other franchises that do very well. These are household names mm-hmm. and the Cost of the investment, Malcolm, is significantly lower than one would need if they were buying a McDonald's. So, think of a company like Servpro, right? Okay. You either you've experienced damage in a home as a result of water, fire, flood, natural disasters, right? Or you know someone who has experienced that. Well, a company like Servpro has been in this space for 35, 40 years, right? They're a household name. Think of this, Malcolm. As we sit home now, and more and more of us are working from home, and maybe we turn on the television during the television during a break, right? We're seeing all of the commercials about damage restoration, right? Think mm-hmm. of Liberty Mutual and uh, Progressive, and what's the young lady's name, Flo, right? And, yeah. Insurance companies spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year acquiring customers. So when their customers have a loss, they need to be made whole again. So that whole damage restoration piece and the the serve pros of the world, the Paul Davis um, restoration companies are great concepts. um, And they've become household names over the years. You're already... um,
2: Mm-hmm. you're already educating me once again because i didn't even know surf pro was a franchise like i know exactly the company you're talking about i can see their orange and green like everything in my <laughs> in my brain but like i didn't even realize that they were uh franchise franchises right and so you were in that statement i want to pull something out because this is part of a conversation that you and i have had in the past that uh, i want to make sure we we actually touch on like you you, all, you always use mcdonald's as your example, right? Because everybody's familiar with the McDonald's franchise concept. Everybody, sort of the holy grail, you know, of of owning a franchise is a McDonald's, right? And you mentioned the fact that the barrier to entry, the first barrier to entry to get into a McDonald's concept is that million dollars or more. And we'll get into the financing of franchising toward the back half of this show. But just in general, one of the things that I know to be the case as far as a McDonald's specifically is concerned, is I use the term outsiders initially when I was talking about, you know, folks like me who may have an interest in becoming a franchise or, or a franchisee, I guess, is the the right side of it. Mm-hmm. But I've never worked at McDonald's before. So they would consider me an outsider. I've never worked at Chick-fil-A before. I've never worked at, you know, Starbucks before. I know that they have a, a, a very serious preference for and almost like, exclusivity for we only really want people who have lived our culture before to be the owners of the operators of those franchise concepts. Is that, am I correct in saying that or am I off the mark?
3: No, you're, you're pretty accurate. However, where, where it gets a little different, Malcolm is some of the good franchisors in the food space. If you as the franchisee do not necessarily possess all of the food experience that they may want you to bring to the table, Mm -hmm. that as long as you're willing to bring in an equity partner, maybe 5%, 10% who has that food experience and Ah, can be there on a day-to-day basis, then that might be the, the potential solution for you and for the franchisor as well
2: that makes it a little more palatable. Still, I guess it's important to know that like the, the preferences for people, we don't have to teach how to do things properly. And we know you won't come in here and mess things up, but that, that makes it a little more palatable too. So thank you for that. And you were giving examples I, I, before I kind of took us on that course using surf pro as sort of the example, the lesser known example. Do you have any more that kind of fit into that, that same
3: Think about it, right? Everybody knows Home Depot and Lowe's, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, the big box hardware stores, when I'm going to a hardware store, I want to go somewhere that's a little more intimate, smaller, and I can get a level of expertise around my questioning, not being that hands- on you know guy around the house, right? So take mm-hmm. a place like Ace Hardware, right hmm. ACE hardware has been around for many, many years. Most people go there, buy their shovels and, and their plants, but they never think of it as a franchise, right? Had no
2: idea. Put me in that same category.
3: <laughs> right. And I can go there and get my questions answered. I go mm-hmm. to Home Depot. These are, in many cases, are people like myself. No knock on Home Depot. Very successful company, right? But when I want to get in-depth knowledge on being a, a do-it-yourselfer in certain areas with you know, around the home, I go to Ace Hardware. One of my daughters' one of my daughter's favorite places to shop is a place called Plato's Closet. Have you mm-hmm. heard of it? I have.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, So my daughter loves going there. It's well-worn used clothing, but she can get very, very high-end stuff at a, a tenth of the price. So yeah. her and her girlfriends go across and they shop till they drop, or at least they run out of money. They come away very satisfied, and it's well-worn high-end clothing in many cases that was. donate
2: it back to these locations all right i'm proud of myself because that one i did know so i I guess i'm one for three so far in this like trivia round but last time you and i talked right you educated me on an aspect of franchising called the semi-absentee model i believe is what you referred to it is could you say a little bit more about what that is and how it works in comparison to what we were just discussing with the larger better known better established brands
3: Sure, absolutely. So when we talk about the semi-absentee franchise models, you know, that's been growing in popularity over the past 10 years as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the semi-absentee models are really franchises. Think of Massage Envy, right? Mm -hmm. Massage Envy has a thousand customers, a million customers, a thousand units worldwide, right? You'll never walk into a Massage Envy franchise and see the franchisee, working in the store doing massages, right? Hmm. These are what we call in a franchise space, executive models, manage the manager sort of models, right? And they're designed to be you know, replicated and scaled so that that corporate executive that's been downsized, but maybe they're thinking about going back to corporate America. So they're sort of what we call downsized with options. The semi-absentee model is perfect, right? Because they're not gonna be working there full time. Typically, most semi-absentee models are for that person that could find, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours a week to work on their business and not in their business. Right. Hmm. So Hmm. it's ideal for, you know, that that corporate person that's been downsized. Another person is, you know, listen, hey, I'm in corporate America, gainfully employed. I love what I do. But I know at some point I'm going to be tapped on the shoulder. Right. And say my services are no longer needed. Right. So for that person, it becomes an exit strategy. So they buy (laughs) the first unit while they're gainfully employed, get that one open and operating successfully, and then maybe add a second and a third. And at which point they've determined that they have enough money from their entrepreneurial pursuit that they could take this opportunity and leave before, you know, they were tapped on the shoulder. And then really the the last group is the investor owner group, right? These are people that are just simply looking to diversify their portfolio. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: You know, maybe they have ETFs and they have stocks and and they have bonds, but they're looking for another sort of asset to round out or diversify their portfolio. In many cases, these are people that they're not looking to buy a job, right? They want to buy an investment opportunity. So very
2: common, Malcolm, in the personal care
3: services space As well as fitness and on
2: on some levels food so what's interesting about that like i'm thinking about so as you know i'm sure the the main audience for this show is that senior manager that executive in technology so as you're talking about folks that that earn a really great living right but then also tend to retire earlier than the average american right And I'm thinking about a lot of the companies that those people would represent. I'll use Microsoft as an example. Microsoft at like 55, they get extremely generous with the packages that they offer their people to walk away, to retire early, quote unquote. And as I'm I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about that, right? If I've been at Microsoft 10 years length of service, they'll accelerate the vesting of shares, give me access to a lot of things that I wouldn't. Have at other companies where you've got to be 65 basically to be quote unquote full retirement age. So I'm thinking about like, as you're saying that I could retire early at 55, then go buy into a franchise or a few franchise concepts. Right. And run those. And maybe it takes me 10 hours worth of work per week or whatever on the high end. But in that model you just described, I'm not really having to do a ton of the work. But then I'm also thinking about where I brought this up to you in the first place. The reason I asked you on was the clients that are, are looking to just diversify their portfolio, as you just said, to not owning things that are correlated to the stock market, right? Because normally we think about the stock market and the bond market are supposed to be that ballast where one is up and the other is down and one buffers the other from that, that down market that we happen to be in. But that, is really becoming disjointed in the market that we have now and really has been over the last like five or so years in a way that it's becoming more and more important to own alternative assets, alternative investments. And this would fall into owning a direct ownership in a a business would fall into that uh, alternative investment category. And so this is really interesting to me because it gives me the opportunity to own a stake in a business or a few that is not correlated to whatever's happening in the stock market. So whenever the, the next big market crash happens, it doesn't necessarily have the same effect on my overall portfolio as it would if I were 100% in the S&P 500, right? Or I was in that traditional 60-40 model or you know, what have you. So it's, it's really interesting yep. as I'm, I'm listening to you describe that from the executive model or the early retiree or pre-retiree, being sort of perfect for this, because that's not really a place that I had spent a ton of time really focusing on. So I appreciate you for for giving me that perspective on it. But something else I want to go back to real quick. You mentioned when you were talking about McDonald's, a million dollars sort of being the, the focus and the threshold as far as getting into the franchise. And everybody's not McDonald's, right? You just listed a handful of other ones that we never really would have thought about, or I should say, I never really would have thought about as franchise concepts that I use on a regular basis. What does the average franchise actually take to get up and running? If you you think
3: about it like this, Malcolm, so if you think about the the franchise landscape, right, you're talking about 36, almost 3,700 active and operating franchises in the United States, right? So if you Mm -hmm. were to break that down, 27% of them cost under $100,000, total hmm. investment to buy in, and that's franchise fee, working capital, furniture, fixtures, equipment, that's the, the entire package, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you look at the, the number of franchises that cost under $250,000, right? A, a far cry from the million or two million for you know some of the food concepts. That number swells to over 60% of the 3,600 franchises out there Cost under two hundred and fifty thousand total investment. I think a lot of people are surprised to know that. So for most of my clients, Malcolm, it's really not even so much about the money. I think this piece is good for them to know. But it's really about you, you know when we talk about well, what does it actually take for them to get started? It's really about what I call their 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 ownership readiness, right? It's mm-hmm. really more about. Are they really ready to take this plunge? You and I know everybody says they want to own a business, right? Everybody wants <laughs> right. to be a business owner until they get deep in the weeds and realize how much work is involved. Usually what happens is that there's a level of fear and doubt and worry that boil up the fear of failure, right? Nobody wants to fall down. No, one's, no one wants to lose money. So that is probably the biggest thing that I, that I try to spend time with my clients and help, help them to understand, right? Are you really ready? To overcome the fear and the doubt and the worry of not being successful. Because again, these are people that have been successful in corporate America for 25, 30 years. Everything they touch turned to gold, right? And all of a sudden, this is something that's totally new to them. So while there's the the, the the monetary piece, it's also the emotional piece, what I call the
2: ownership readiness. It sounds like though, if I'm understanding you correctly, and I want you to clarify this and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is even though I'm planning to be sort of that absentee owner, right? I'm, I'm planning to turn over the reins to somebody else to, to run the operations on a regular basis. How much should I expect in the very beginning to need to commit my own time to this thing? Because it sounds like you're saying in order to ensure its success, I'm still going to have to do more than just write a check in the very beginning to get this thing up and running and ensure that it's successful. So if I were to break it down into you know man hours, right? You're looking at mm-hmm. about 20,
3: 25 hours per week, depending on the franchise model and how hands-on that that franchisee wants to be, right? But I try to tell everyone, don't expect to just build it and they'll come, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be mm-hmm. involved in the site selection alongside the franchisor because you know your market better in many cases than a franchisor does, right? So you want to be very involved in the real estate, the site selection. To the extent that you could bring some some intellectual capital to the to the lease negotiations, because at the end of the day, it's your name on the lease, not the franchisor, right? Yeah, it's going to be more front loaded in the beginning, as your your franchise model business becomes more seasoned, then you can pull back, right? Allow the fruits of your labor in the beginning to kind of come to fruition. And then you start thinking about a second unit and then a third unit, and then at, at which point you're hiring usually a general manager to kind of oversee your mini empire is the goal. All
2: right, so we talked about very briefly, you, you talked about like the percentage of concepts that are below $100,000 to get started, the percentage of concepts that are below $250,000 to get started. And you know we're talking about people who have significant sums of money, sure, but that's still not chump change. How much of your own money do you see lenders require before they'll loan you the rest of the money to buy into a franchise concept, right? Is it 20 percent? Is it 30 percent? I know that you can borrow to get the franchise going, but I know you also have to have skin in the game. So how does that work?
3: Typically, you're going to look at a range of anywhere from 10 to 30 percent equity injection, depending on a franchise model. Okay, right? That's a big um, So if it's an emerging, yeah, well, you know what happens is if there's, if it's an emerging brand, let's say they've been in business and operating for less than five years and maybe less than 50 units, mm-hmm. the lenders may want a little more of your skin in a game because there's a little less, you know, proof of concept, right? Sure. Depending on a credit score. If your credit score is not at least 680, that could play a role. What are your transferable skills relative to uh, the professional experience and, and and overlaying that with what is the franchisor looking for, right? That could bring some level of comfort to the lender as well. So there's a lot of factors, but I would say mm. anywhere from 10 to 30% is normal. Now, here's something I would throw into the pot because I don't think most people think about this, but okay. I'm getting this question more and more from lenders now as we're kind of learned some things during this, this pandemic. There's this thing, it's a criteria or a box that needs to be checked on behalf of the lenders. And I try to make sure my, all of my clients are aware of this and it's called post-closing liquidity.
2: Mm. So this is similar to like when a, when a mortgage company requires you to have some reserves after you close a new mortgage, right? Is that what you're talking about?
3: Absolutely, Malcolm, 100%. That,
2: that's a great analogy. Yeah, they want to make sure that
3: you can pay your personal bills and expenses as well as cover whatever the, the debt service that you're going to incur as a result of the loan. So it's really important to understand that when you're starting to think about how much money you're going to inject in this business, 10, 20 or 30 mm-hmm. percent, that you still have an adequate balance sheet to live off of or you may not be able to secure the loan.
2: So it sounds like in, in the franchise space, cash is king is what you're, you're, you're telling me.
3: Yeah. But, you know, it's funny before the pandemic, Malcolm, this wasn't as much of an issue then as it is now. And it's almost like, if you think back to 2008, right? The the sub problem, subprime mortgage crisis, right? Before, you know, 2008, anybody with a W-2 could get a mortgage, right? Sure. And then after the crash, you know, the, the underwriting standards and the lenders started to look at, with a little more scrutiny, who was getting those, those mortgages, sort of some of the learning that happened there. We're starting to see that bubble up in the franchise lending space as well.
2: So uh, to that end, I know not all banks like to lend in this space, right? Especially like the big six banks, they have their franchise outfit where they sort of like a specific grouping of franchises, and those are the ones they lend to and the rest they don't. But for the ones who do lend in the franchise space, they like more established shops and and underwrite based on that criteria, as you were alluding to, right? They have to factor in the risk. But what types of banks do you often see lending to these uh, would be franchise operators?
3: It's funny because we often don't have any problems as long as the the client has the the requisite balance sheet, getting funding and financing for franchises is pretty easy to do today. The banks actually really love franchising and I'll tell you why, right? Think about it. It's proof of concept, Mm -hmm. right? Franchise sales are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission and has been since 1979, right? So if you're gonna buy a franchise, that franchisor has to give you a document which is registered with the state and the federal government called a franchise disclosure document. So any layperson can get their hands on a franchise disclosure document and can calculate the success or lack of success of that particular franchise or. So the mm-hmm. lenders they review they they refer to a document called the SBA registry. So as long as the franchise is on the SBA registry, they have at least a 90% success rate the banks are willing and able to fund those franchises small and large and and regardless of industry group as well it's
2: pretty accessible funding general people lay people like myself who are who are novices at best in the fran- world of franchising might think that Since a franchise is an already established business, right? It has a local or regional or even national footprint. You would look at that and think it's a guaranteed success, right? You just mentioned a a 98% success rate for coveted franchise concepts. But I know it still takes some work for those franchise owners to be successful. Like, as you alluded to uh, earlier on, any idea what the long-term success rate is for first-time franchisees versus any other entrepreneur starting a business from scratch?
3: Yeah, you know, so I don't have any real specific data to that point.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: I I can tell you that the franchise model, because you're purchasing a playbook, right? It's you're taking someone else's idea, you you know, cloning it and making it yours. The degree of success is significantly higher than an independent business. We we do know that, but in, in terms of the actual numbers, I don't know. So what I tell people is, if you're interested in a particular concept, get a hold Mm -hmm. of that franchise disclosure document. And in item 20 of that legal document, there's something that's called list of outlets. And the franchisors are required to update that every year by state how many units have opened and how many units have closed. So that's kind of real-time, relevant data that people can look at and make for their own determinations, whether or not the success or failure rate of that particular franchise, you know, meets their targets.
2: Interesting. If I've made the decision that this is something I want to get into, I want to become a, a franchisee. Right. And I'll give you a real life example. So say for a second that I'm a senior person at Coinbase, right, who just IPO not too long ago. and And I've come into some life changing money. Right. I owned a good number of shares in the company. It went public and, and was a huge payday for me. So I decide I'd like to add a franchise or two, you know, to my portfolio. Where do you recommend I start?
3: Yes, great question. And I, I can tell you unequivocally, Malcolm, usually for my high net worth clients, they're not looking to buy a job, right? They're specifically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. looking into that semi absentee space. Show me something that I can get in and scale over time, open multiple units, and then possibly even diversify within the franchise industries, right? So as an example, I have a client now who opened multiple Marcos pizza franchises, right? Mm. Came back to me and said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm I'm out of territory down here in Charlotte, right? What other concepts can I own and operate and run without being there every day, and that I could add to my portfolio and diversify it. So the semi-absentee space is where I go 100% of the time for those types of clients.
2: Okay, so for anybody listening who's living that situation I just described or something similar, <laughs> it sounds like doing some research on the semi-absentee space is probably the first place to go and then call Boynton is the second place to go. It sounds like that's, that's uh, <laughs> the gist of, of what you're telling me. But you mentioned in the lead up to this you personally, as a franchisee, had had made all the mistakes or made some of the mistakes, I guess. Let me not say all because nothing, nothing new under the sun. Right. But what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen personally that people fall into when taking the plunge into acquiring their first franchise that you can share and maybe help people avoid you know, making some of those same missteps?
3: first thing I tell people and tell my clients and my family and friends we're at a barbecue right is you know don't fall in love with the product hmm. right the fact that you like eating there is good and you like the food right but what you if you're if you're going to invest in this model, what I need you to fall in love with is the playbook hmm. right because that's you, you know I need you to fall in love with their processes what demographics and psychographics are they using to determine where you ought to You know, hang your flag in your community, right? All of those things matter, right? From an operational standpoint, what sort of training and support are you providing to your franchisees that's leading to their success and their ability to open a second and third unit? And then within that, if you still love the product, great. So that's the first thing, you know, fall in love with the playbook. Secondly, have a compelling and sustainable why, You've, you and I have interviewed hundreds of successful and less successful business owners over the years, right? And one of the things they all have in common is they have a compelling and sustainable why. They're not hmm. buying a business because their neighbor owns one and it's successful, right? It's got to be something deeper and more intriguing intriguing and compelling. And then the last thing I say is as you start to develop you know, your why, and you're thinking about business ownership, and maybe it's franchising, maybe it's an independent business, whatever it is, develop a list of must-haves, right? And these okay. things sort of become unbreakable and non-negotiable, right? If it's semi-absentee, it's semi-absentee. If it's equity injection under 100000 that's your target. Maybe you want something that's Amazon-proof, um, recession-resistant, hmm. high demand, something that emerging technologies in that industry may not in the short or medium term impact your business model you know the product or service can't be shipped overseas like you really need to give some thought to creating the boxes that are your must-haves right Mm -hmm. and that are non-negotiable and unbreakable and i think if you kind of wrap your arms around those three things um you've got a pretty good chance for success
2: interesting well that's all good stuff man i i i I appreciate you sharing that with us. This has been uh, this has been awesome. I have you know my my final one customary question that has absolutely nothing to do with franchising. So get nervous. Um, but my question <laughs> I like to ask all my uh, all my guests just to get a, a sense for you as a person, right? Absolutely nothing to do with the business. Let's say you never discovered your passion for franchising, right? And it's clear it's there. It's clear this is your your passion, but let's just say for a second that never happened, but money wasn't a factor in your decision at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now?
3: Well, that's easy. That's easy, Mountain. I would be on the golf course every day. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would be doing.
0: Okay. So we're talking PGA tour.
3: Well, I don't know. I won't be there. (laughs) I won't be there, but my wife often refers to my passion for golf as, you know, my mistress, right? Where are you going to see your mistress today? <laughs> yeah, I'll be gone for five hours. I'll be at uh, Cherry Valley Golf Club, babe. <laughs> so that's what I would do if money wasn't an issue.
2: Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you <laughs> making the time to do this. This was awesome. Where can people find you if they want more Boynton Weeks or uh, have questions about FranNet after this?
3: My contact information is you can uh, email me at B, as in Boynton, w e e k e s b weeks at Frannet. F-R-A-N-N-E-T dot com. I respond to all emails or certainly connect with me on LinkedIn.
2: Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and take us home, man?
0: Sounds good. You guys, this is a fantastic podcast. Learned a ton right alongside Malcolm. Malcolm, thank you for bringing him on. And of course, our last thank you goes to your listening audience. Thanks for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device this makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you just a little smarter about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcomethridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by top advisor marketing, CrowdMouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.
0: Um.